Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of August, and this is Govindra Jethi Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Jio Financial stock gets hammered, hits a lower circuit on the bosses again. India's digital lending industry grows 49%, but 86% of all borrowers are male. Rating agency ICRA and the State Bank put out GDP projections for the April to June quarter. ICRA says India grew 8.5%. Visiting New York, Airbnb may not be an option as New York cracks down on short-term rentals and listings begin to disappear. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Geofinancial and other market news. Geofinancial services recently demerged from Parent Reliance Industries was locked at the 5% lower circuit for the second straight day. Now 5% is the maximum it can go. The stock settled at 239 rupees 20 paise on the Bombay Stock Exchange. Now, following these two successive lower circuits, the stock exchange, that's BSE, has deferred the removal of Geofinancial from its indices by another three days to August 29th. Website BQ Prime says there were no buyers for the stock for the second straight day and volumes remained tepid. The stock on Monday had 37 million shares in sell orders on the NSC or the National Stock Exchange, which rose to 110 million on Tuesday. Passive funds are those tracking the benchmark Nifty or BSE Sensex and global indices are set to own about 130 million shares. And since Geofinancial will not be a part of these indices, all passive funds have no option but to exit the stock in the next few days. That's before the close of the month. And the 5% circuit on the stock isn't helping as passive funds have to wait till they're able to sell their shares. The stock is listed under the T-series, which means only delivery-based buying and selling can take place. Remember, this stock had listed at a value of $20 billion and is somewhere close to that and is also a company which has no real business to speak of at this point. Otherwise, in a remarkably flat day on the bosses, the BSC Sensex ended at 65,220, up four points. The NEC Nifty ended at 19,396, up just three points. If you were wondering what to do in such times, a quick reminder. Do listen in to what fund manager and HDFC asset management CEO Navneet Punar told me on Monday's podcast, that's episode number 76. Meanwhile, among other well-conglomerate and potentially eco-friendly news, copper and aluminum producer Hindalco Industries of the Aditya Birla Group said it will invest 2,000 crore rupees in setting up a copper and e-waste recycling facility. Your company is making an investment of 2,000 crore rupees to establish the first-of-its-kind copper and e-waste recycling facility in India, the company's chairman Kumar Mangalambirla told shareholders at the company's AGM on Tuesday. He said that this will also tackle the challenges posed by electronic waste. And in aviation news, which we've not visited for a while, Tata Singapore Airlines or Vistara said its net loss for the year 22-23 came in at 1,393 crore or about 31% lower than the 2,031 crore reported in the previous year. The company said in a regulatory filing with the Ministry of Corporate Affairs according to a report in Money Control. Vistara's top line of revenue from operations reportedly doubled in 22-23 compared to 11,784 crore in the previous financial year which would presumably take it to about 22,000 crores. The combined loss now of Tata Group Airlines, remember Vistara is one of them, Air India, Air Asia and Vistara stood at about 15,000 crores for the financial year 
Now, this does not look good and a new livery may not help Air India either. But these are early days, at least relatively. And all these companies could potentially take some losses for some time. And now the growth projection news. Rating agency ICRA Ratings has said India's economic growth will accelerate to 8.5% in the April to June period of the current fiscal from the 6.1% growth rate witnessed in the preceding Jan to March quarter. The rating agency attributed the faster growth to a supportive base and also a recovery in the services sector. ICRA's rating, by the way, is higher than the Reserve Bank's forecast of 8.1%. Though ICRA has said that the second half of this year is likely to see headwinds, and that's something most economists are already saying. The State Bank of India, meanwhile, claims it has developed an artificial neural network or ANN model with 30 high-frequency indicators. Now, what that exactly means, I am not too sure, but I promise to find out. State Bank of India says the ANN or the artificial neural network has been trained for the quarterly GDP data from 2011 Q4, that's the fourth quarter of 2011, to the fourth quarter of 2020. And the in-sample forecast performance of the model in the training period has been precise. Out-of-sample forecast performance of the last four quarters have been precise, says the State Bank of India. And on the basis of all of this, State Bank says that the quarterly GDP growth for the Q1, that's the first quarter of 23-24, would be at 8.3%. So let's see who is the closest, the humans or the neural networks. Speaking of projections, Standard & Poor's has joined the US bank downgrade party. Two weeks after Moody's Investor Services rattled financial stocks by cutting ratings for several U.S. banks, S&P Global Ratings is now downgrading and reducing its outlook for several more, citing a similar mix of pressures making life tough for lenders, Bloomberg is reporting. S&P lowered grades one notch for several banks, noting the impact of higher interest rates and deposit moves across the industry. Many depositors have shifted their funds into higher interest-bearing accounts, increasing banks' funding costs. S&P wrote in a note summarizing the moves. And if you watch the bank sector or have been tracking the banking sector in India, these are things to watch out for as well. The decline in deposits has squeezed liquidity for many banks while the value of their securities, which make up a large part of their liquidity, has fallen, S&P said. Moody's earlier lowered credit ratings for 10 US banks and warned it may downgrade others as part of a sweeping look at mounting pressures on the industry. Back at home though, rating agencies like Fitch have upgraded their ratings on Indian banks. Speaking of banks and lending. India's digital lending industry has grown 49% in disbursements. Digital lending via fintech companies who work typically with banks is getting bigger in India. The number of disbursements through this route has grown 49% between 21-22 and 22-23. Fintech lenders gave out some 71 million loans worth 92,000 crore rupees. Now, the number of recipients will not be as high as this because many are repeat borrowers. The demographics are interesting. Most importantly, some 86% of loan takers are male and 80% are less than 40 years of age, perhaps not surprisingly. Breaking that down further, 40% is in the 30 to 40 years of age range, 25% in the 25 to 30 years and 16% is less than 25 years of age. Now, that could be, depending on where you sit or stand, either a cause of optimism or worry. As it turns out, many or most of these people do not have credit cards or lack access to other forms of borrowing. Remember, we are talking interest rates that are close to credit cards or even higher, which could be in the region of 36% annually. 
The top states that are borrowing digitally are Maharashtra at 14%, Karnataka and Uttar Pradesh at 10% and 8% in Tamil Nadu and Telangana. The top cities, interestingly, are Bangalore, Thane, Hyderabad, Mumbai Suburban and Pune. So three of the five top loan-taking cities digitally on fintech platforms are in the state of Maharashtra. The ticket sizes are as follows, roughly 470,000 for a business loan, 12,000 for a consumer loan and around 11,000 for a personal loan. Delinquency levels are between 2.5 to 4.2%. Of course, the numbers here reflect the digital side of it and not the entirety of small ticket loans, which could be flowing directly from banks and other institutions and more of that in a moment. To understand how this space was growing and also why women ranked so low, I spoke with Sugan Saxena, CEO of the Fintech Association of Consumer Empowerment, a body that represents many of the major fintech companies in India. I think there's a lot of external factors which drive it. One for fintech lenders, they rely heavily on consumers' data, which essentially means they have to be digitally transacting, they should have financial transaction data happening through digital mode, only then that data is valuable in terms of underwriting, which essentially means bias towards uh, salaried segment where the income is coming through bank accounts or even in unsalaried segment where consumers are using digital transactions to buy and purchase and so on. There is a you know bias towards urban sort of workers who work in these geographies where women perhaps do not have these kind of data available and therefore underwriting is difficult. Second, I think externally we all know the diminishing women force participation in the you know workforce. I think this is a worrying trend, which also reflects in the way women would take loans. Uh, ultimately, you take loans for certain reasons and if you're not employed, it would be hard for you to service these loans. Third, I guess, is again a very known factor that women's access to mobile phone is again you know, limited or shared with household. I think the gap is strikingly wide in that sense, which again, perhaps their ability to use mobile phone, because in case of fintech lenders, majority of your journeys happen through mobile phone. So I think, again, these are my sort of uh, speculation or uh, you know understanding of what it is. But our members, if you ask me any fintech lenders, they will tell you that they do not differentiate or they would very much like women borrowers to come in. But in the funnel itself, there is a lesser women coming. Yeah. And could it also be because women are not really, let's say, keen on taking that much debt? Is that a possibility as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So it could be a behavioral thing as well. I mean, that women just don't take as much debt as men, young men do. So which brings me to my next question. So the youngest group, which is under 25 years, seems to be the fastest growing in terms of dispersed amount. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because these are fairly high interest rates that we're talking about. Yeah, so I guess we have to look at the context again in terms of a lot of young people. Even when I started, I have no access to credit, right? People take credit at a very late stage of their career. But this generation, I think, has a very different approach to credit and the way they consume things or what the aspiration are. We're also living in a situation where everything is much more expensive when there is aspiration. So I get this partly sort of gets reflected in why people are taking loans. And when we look at use cases of this, you know, we have a couple of surveys done uh, last year. People use this for education reason. People use this for emergency so in that sense, it's a good thing that rather than relying on much higher expensive source of funding available from other informal sector, they are now have access to formal credit through fintech lenders. So I would think of it as positive 
side in terms of access to formal credit. And then they build their credit history. If you look at it, a lot of these new customers who come to FitTech polls, data tells us that they improve their credit scores and eventually would have access to maybe lower cost of funding from banks and so on. And, you know, you've uh, put out a figure of 92,000 crores, roughly, as total disbursements for 22-23. Now, does this mean only funds that have gone through your members or is it the overall lending to this demographic or these demographics? It's a very complex question because say, digital lending is very widely defined. If you look at RBI Working Group report in 2020, it talks about 80% of the digital lending happening through banks and 20% from the non-banks. Within non-banks also, we take a very small slice of fintech lenders where we can say that these are pure play fintech lenders lending mostly through apps. We don't know what the bank's fintech lending would be because, you know, all of us see our apps, our banking apps offering loans just at the touch of a button. That is not captured. So it does capture a slice of the fintech lending. But in terms of volume, we would think that it's a very comprehensive report compared to say, personal loan segment, because if you look at the personal loan segment, last year, 10 crore loans were distributed in the PL category, and we are talking about 7 crore. So if you look at the small ticket personal loan, this really reflects a very comprehensive picture of integrity. And I had a question on that. So when you say 70 million loans, or 71 million loans as you've given out, is that 70 million people, or is it so many times? Yeah, it's a disbursement volume, so it's not a unique customers. So how many would that be? It's hard to know. We don't have data to see, but it would be, I would think, uh, much less than what this number is. And how often would people take loans, as in in your classic demographic of under 25, for example, or 25 to 30? Yeah, this report does not tell us frequency of the loans. I would not be able to call. But it's high is what you're saying. Yeah, people take loans. They come back. So the whole promise is that, you know, you take loan only when you need it. So you finish the loan fast in three months and then you take another loan when you need it. So people, repeat customer is a significant portion of fintech lending. So looking at the cities or city districts that lead the pack, you've got Bangalore, which maybe is not surprising because it's so supply driven. Thane, Hyderabad, Mumbai Suburban and Pune. So it's clearly West, which is Maharashtra that has Thane, Mumbai and Pune. And there's Bangalore and Hyderabad. Bangalore, of course, being first. Any further insights to this? I think it's natural where the demand is. I wouldn't say supply, but I would say actually demand because, you know, you need these young customers who are actually comfortable taking entire journey of the fintech lending over mobile phones. So that's the first condition are rich with data in terms of transaction volumes. And I would presume that, you know, these customers who come to these cities, whether as a student or first-time job seekers, they need loans. And this is where, you know, perhaps these are concentrated. So if you look at Bangalore as a huge population of gig economy workers, again, logistics, healthcare. So this is a very natural sort of customer segment. I would say very educated, but income-wise may not be at that level where they can afford credit card or they can do all their things through savings and therefore relying on the credit for their specific needs. Now, since you mentioned that, so you're saying these are people who may not have a credit card but use this or as an alternative to credit cards? Absolutely. So these customers see fintechs, you know, their focus segment is somebody who's an address. If somebody has a credit card, there would be some customer who might still be doing it, but they won't because they have a credit card. These are the customers who otherwise do not have access to other financial products like you and I. Yeah, I guess that's the logical answer to a not-so-logical question. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Govind. Take care. Bye.
What is the future for petrol sipping two wheelers? The founder of an electric two-wheeler company in India said, and not for the first time, that companies who manufacture internal combustion engine-based two-wheelers should shut down, or words to that effect. He was of course referring to giants like Hero Motors, Bajaj Auto and TVS, among others. Before we come to that proposition, let's look at what the numbers are. Some 51,000 electric two-wheelers were sold in July 2023, that's about 11% more than the previous month. Ola Electric led the pack by far with about 18,000 units with a market share of 36%. TVS sold about 9,500 scooters, Aether sold 6,198 and Bajaj Auto, which has ramped up production of the Chetak scooter, sold about 3,900. So all manufacturers in the electric two-wheeler space grew. In contrast, roughly 1.2 million two-wheelers were sold in July. Within that, about 0.8 million were motorcycles and scooters, around 0.4 million. Now, growth has slowed down for many, including market leader Hero Motors. The reasons ascribed are many, but it's not clear it is being caused by any definite shift away from two-stroke petrol engines. Meanwhile, electric has some advantages, including the ability to be charged with free electricity in many villages in India, as former Federation of Automotive Dealers of India President Nikunj Sangi told me a few weeks ago. To get a better sense, I reached out to Horma Sarabji, editor of Autocar India, and asked him what he felt about petrol engine two-wheeler companies shutting down and what it meant, literally or figuratively, if anything. Well, I think the merit is obviously the push person's own agenda, which is the electric two-wheelers, which is fine. But how practical is that as also seen by the double speak of his cabs running on dirty so-called ice engines. So while it's a nice goal to have, it's not entirely achievable. And I think we also need to be a little calibrated in our rush towards EVs because my view is that while EVs are clean to run, they are dirty to build. And that is something one needs to also take a holistic view of it. Surely that is the way to go. Public enemy number one today is CO2. But producing an EV produces a lot of CO2 as well, even though they don't emit it. I would uh, take these statements more as a nice hype and hoopla and a little bit of jingoism beating the EV drum and making a statement like that actually, in a way, questions the credibility of the person. You know, I was just looking at the numbers. So electric two-wheelers for last month, for example, was about 51,000 something. And two-wheelers in all, which obviously means petrol mostly, is about 1.2 million. I mean, there's a huge gap. There's no doubt. But how do you see this going forward, Hormas? I mean, do you feel that electric could grow and what could drive it, if at all? No, absolutely. In fact, I think the prime candidate for electrification from a vehicle category is two-wheelers. Three-wheelers also because it makes a lot of commercial sense. Passenger vehicles, a lot more challenges. And I think they would be a bit slower. But electric two-wheelers, fantastic. I own an electric scooter. I'm loving it. Don't use it that frequently. But when I do, I just absolutely love it. Is it the model that belongs to the same company? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's an Ola S1 Pro. Honestly, I'm quite happy with the product. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's had its fair share of glitches. You know, quality control generally is an issue. But people learn along the way. It's always a learning curve. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a well-spec product. So it will happen. But I think, uh, you know, to make a statement saying that you should end it. I mean, what are people going to do? Are you going to be able to produce 20 million two-wheelers or, or whatever we need? They're obviously not. You know, it doesn't make sense. It's a journey. It does take time. And we are well on that journey. And I think even the government has been very supportive in this with uh, lower taxation rates, fame subsidies, which have really helped. So I think everyone's done their bit in that sense. But the subsidies are now being yanked out and have been yanked out. Yeah, they have. I think, you know, there were a lot of uh, issues on fame being misused by some people and that was really unfortunate. 
and obviously the government were planning to roll them back in any case. But the lower GST rates still remain, which is a big help. A lot of places, you don't need registration again, which is a big help. And frankly, at the end of the day, the technology has to stand on its own feet. You can't constantly be getting subsidies from the government. Still an expensive technology, especially the batteries, which are still imported, the cells, and uh, will continue to be for in the short term. So clearly there is a cost issue, but just the benefits, people are seeing that as the customer matures, evolves and realizes that more than just saving the planet, you know, an electric two-wheeler is more practical and saves your wallet dramatically. So last question, I mean, as an extension to your answer, what about tastes and preferences? Do you see customers, you know, giving up, forget the choice of electric, but do you feel they will give up on the power and charisma of a petrol two-wheeler? Well, to be honest, the power is much more on our EV, right? Especially the low-end top. In fact, today, the Ola S1 Pro is one of the fastest accelerating two-wheelers in that category, a scooter in that category. So it's really, really very quick. So there's no shortage of power. In fact, there's a lot more power. The only charisma is the sound of an engine, but I think commuters don't want that. They want something that's uh, fuss-free. So I think, yes, they will definitely be giving up their ICE combustion scooters for EVs. Is very logical. I just think the price parity has to come down. Certain companies are aggressively pricing their two-wheelers. Again, Ola has done a great job on that. So it's really democratized their EVs. One has to hand it to them. Their largest selling EV player today, giving a very attractive value proposition to customers. And that's really uh, driving growth, which is great. But, you know, this is a long-term game and, you know, it can't be an overnight switch from ICE to EVs. Armas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The war between regulators and big tech continues. You would think that regulators, whether in ride-sharing apps like Uber or homestays like Airbnb, have made their peace and found a happy equilibrium, so to speak. Well, not so. Thousands of New York City Airbnb listings are vanishing from the market. Hosts are removing listings in response to a city-mandated deadline and Airbnb is blocking future dates for booking. Starting September 5th, city officials say they will enforce rules on short-term rentals more aggressively, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. Hosts of short-term rentals need to register with the city to continue providing stays and can only do so if they meet several requirements, which include not renting out an entire apartment or home even if they own it. And hosts must be present during their guests' short-term stays. There are about 38,500 Airbnb listings in New York right now, not counting hotels that list on the platform according to a legal filing. The annual net revenue for these listings is about $85 million. The city estimates that there are about 10,800 illegal short-term rentals citywide. The new law prohibits booking platforms from processing payments for unregistered transactions, which means platforms like Airbnb, VRBO and Booking.com face penalties too, says the Wall Street Journal. Now, the larger question, of course, is if New York leads, will other cities, whether in the United States or elsewhere, follow? Meanwhile, if you are headed to New York, know that you may not find an Airbnb, and with hotel rates being what they are, maybe think of visiting another city or country. Speaking of heading to New York, or anywhere for that matter, also know that Dubai International Airport, the world's busiest for international travel, has said it served 41.6 million passengers in the first half of this year, exceeding figures for the same period in 2019. Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai Airports, told the Associated Press that Dubai Airports has once again recorded for the ninth year running that it is the world's busiest international airport. 
The most important part, he said, is that they have reached 100% of pre-pandemic numbers, the same numbers as recorded in the first half of 2019. More significantly, for tourism and aviation industry policymakers and players back home in India, Dubai's passenger traffic, not surprisingly, has been driven by countries like India. Dubai also remains one of the few places still open to Russians amidst Moscow's war on Ukraine, Bloomberg News says. And before I go, an update on India's lunar mission, Chandrayaan-3. The spacecraft has reached closer to the moon and is all set to soft land on the lunar surface at 6.04pm this August 23rd, Wednesday evening. The ISRO, or the Indian Space Research Organization, said it successfully reduced the orbit of the Chandrayaan-3's mission lander module, or LM, on Sunday. The objectives of this mission are to demonstrate a safe and soft landing on the lunar surface, to demonstrate a rover roving on the moon, and to conduct scientific experiments on the rover. That's it from me for today. See you tomorrow, same time. Do reach out to us on www.thecore.in. Subscribe to our newsletter, visit our website, listen to our podcast, share it with friends, and do also let us know if there's something else you'd like to hear. That's it from me now. Bye. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>